Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Friday. Time for an expert counsel Q&A show of the week. Here's what we got on the docket today. In the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, you'll have Dan McAdams and Dr. Paul teaming up on two topics. One, the COVID tyrants are hoping for obedience again. As I said yesterday, I ain't going to get it. Not for me, anyway. And predictably, the UK Ukraine war has gone badly. And U.S. officials, also predictably, are blaming Ukraine for that. Doc Bones will talk about Met versus Cat tourniquets. Is there really a difference? And the answer is apparently yes, there is. Uh, Romero Romani will have his first expert council segment since he's joined the council and talk about syncing multiple cell phones. Nick Ferguson will talk about managing and spacing for a direct graze coppice tree system. Sean Mills will talk about keeping your waterers for small livestock from freezing up this winter. Professor C.J. Kilmer will discuss The Real Abraham Lincoln, which was actually a book. And I'm going to talk more on the de-dollarization from the BRICS block. So yesterday I said that I didn't think that they were actually going to roll out a BRICS you know, unified currency anytime soon, that maybe eventually something like that would become a payment system, and uh, that they would just trade in their currencies using local currency exchange systems. Turns out the president of South Africa came out today and said, well, exactly that. Almost like I know what I'm talking about. We're going to talk more about this because it's being called not worth paying attention to. Don't worry about it. It's just the bricks. Blah, 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 blah. We, this is an entire shift of a world order, which is what I talked about yesterday. We're going to talk about it a little bit differently, though, in my anchor segment today. With that, let's go ahead and drop on into the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights of the Week. This really shows you the power of propaganda because it was only a year and a half ago and people's memory has been shot since then. They don't remember all the things they <laughs> yeah. did to them. They don't remember study after study saying it didn't do a thing. It didn't change anything. They don't remember anything about the people who've been injured who followed the rules, so-called rules. It's just amazing the power of propaganda. Well, here's how the story started. It happened a few days ago, back <clears throat> just before the weekend. Alex Jones, of course, reported, he said someone talked to him, a whistleblower talked to him, and told him it's coming back, and everyone laughed, oh, Alex Jones, he's so crazy, here he goes again, so crazy. Well, as it often happens, uh, he ends up being right. People laughed at it, they said, here he goes again, but now we're reading the headlines, and this was an article from uh, Steve Watson via Summit News that Zero Hedge picked up saying, yep, it's happening. It'll be interesting to see what happens, whether whether the people are going to, and the parents are going to roll over and go back to their uh, obedience to these crazy people. Well, as we know, this is not about social health. It's about social control. Well, let's move on from one little update that we wanted to do. If we can put that next one on. Now, Antiwar.com did a great job of covering it, as they do. But here's the original New York Times article. Ukraine's forces and firepower are misallocated, U.S. officials say. Go to the next one. 
This is from the New York Times article. Ukraine's grinding counteroffensive is struggling to break through entrenched Russian defenses in large part because it has too many troops, including some of the best combat units, in the wrong places, American and other Western officials say. And I think this goes along with what we've been talking about on the show lately, Dr. Paul, which is now that things are obviously going very, very bad for Ukraine. The U.S., the experts in the U.S. government uh, and think tanks are saying, whoa, 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 don't blame us. It's your guys' <laughs> fault. You did it the wrong way. Yeah, there was a report today about the F-16s coming from the Netherlands. It wasn't until end of next year, yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. And, uh, the, 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 and, and so much of the weaponry, they always, it was old. And I keep thinking, but you don't understand. That opens up the market, and more and more money flows into the coffers of the military-industrial complex. So uh, it's just, it just amazes me how, how inconsistent the, the progressives can be because, you know, there was a time, yeah. you know, that they would be good. They were against uh, the military-industrial complex and, and corporations like the pharmaceutical companies. Now they're gun ho over the whole thing, and uh, it uh, it makes no sense whatsoever. But they also lose credibility over it. Yeah. Eventually, the people wake up on that. Well, we know from Tucker talking to Doug McGregor a couple of days ago. McGregor uh, has uh, said from his sources that there have been about 500,000 casualties on Ukraine's side, and that's a horrific, horrific amount of casualties. And so you're talking about a very, very large-scale war, the biggest war since World War II. Uh, and, and so that's why it's so interesting, in my view, to see these American military experts saying, well, you guys are doing so bad, it's not our fault, you're just doing it wrong. You're not doing combined arms warfare. Well, the first thing we do is we have air superiority in every conflict. And we also never fought a peer power since World War II. It's always been Libya, Iraq, Serbia. You know, we've never fought a peer power, and we've always had air dominance. Well, they don't have it. If McGregor is anywhere near, if his sources are anywhere near being correct, and you have half a million casualties... This is what makes it even more disgusting to hear what the U.S. is complaining about. If you can do the next one, this is from anti-war. They lose a half a million to death and injury, and the U.S. fears Ukraine is too casualty-averse. Could you imagine if we had been plunged into a war like this, and we lost a half a million men, and someone said, come on, get over it, suck you, it up. You, you, know. you didn't send enough sacrificing <laughs> troops enough in there. Yeah. You, you, uh, no, it's such a horror. This is why, uh, you know, the founders uh, were pretty smart people because they anticipated this type of operation when you don't have restraints. And they also knew that the restraints put in the Constitution might not work if you end up with a bunch of immorality in the government that they don't have, they don't believe that uh, taking an oath of office, they, they have to believe that's the biggest joke in the world, but they don't call it a joke. What they say is just a modern interpretation of the Constitution. <laughs> you have to, you have to have not an over rigid, and we can justify this by, look, they've been doing it for years, and the courts will rule this way. You know, all this stuff. They think it's a joke. Obeying the Constitution? Yeah. Well, that's so old. <laughs> and, you know, and I've been told that poor, to my face in a congressional setting. Yeah, that's you right. Know, that's, that's, we don't do that anymore. Come on, Come on man. <laughs> Look, guys, I don't actually completely agree here with Alex Jones being, you know, I'm making air quotes when I say that's right. 
Because what Alex Jones actually said is the Biden administration is going to lock down the entire country, and they know this because somebody from the TSA and the Border Patrol told them. So I think that you're, you're paying, playing fast and loose if you say he was right as it was reported. I do think they're kind of making some moves to try to reestablish this. The thing is, if you've paid attention at all, if you've used your memory at all, one of the reasons that you would doubt that the Biden administration is going to lock us all down is because that's not how it works. And we already have been through this, and we've seen how it works. And individual states control these mandates, not the federal government. It's one of the few vestiges of the republic that's left. But it will be interesting to see how far they'll push this. And as I said yesterday... I kind of welcome them pushing it really hard so that I can tell them to go shove it up their rear end. Now, that's kind of what, what, what uh, Dan was talking about there as to maybe some people want it that are completely opposed to it because they're ident- I don't feel like my identity is based on it. I just feel like I'm happy to just tell you to go screw and shove your, your mask up your ass, all the way up your ass, in the, the tone of Chris Tucker at the end of a very famous movie with Jackie Chan when he told the FBI what they could do with their badge. Um, the other side of this with the Ukraine war, it's, it is slowly coming out from mainstream sources and our own government that the truth that people like I, that people like Colonel Douglas McGregor, that people like Scott Ritter have been telling you about this war from the very beginning is in fact the truth. It is in fact the truth. Uh, Dr. Paul there, or, or Dan, I don't remember which one of them, did mention Colonel McGregor. I, I implore you to go look up the interview that Tucker Carlson did with Colonel McGregor and to listen to it because he's probably the most informed and the most honest informed party on this entire conflict and going all the way back to the genesis which isn't even 2014 that's the genesis of some level of hot war but this goes all the way back it goes even further back but the current storyline goes back to about 2004 and it all has to do with the united states constantly meddling in other countries and we should learn to stop touching things because everything we touch we literally have made worse the last time the United States took you know, major actions that ended up in any way making things better anywhere was 19, the 1940s and World War II. Everything we've touched since there we have made worse. And a lot of it goes back to what we did after World War II and this dealing up things with the Soviets and deciding where we're going to place borders instead of letting natural cultures place their own borders and run their own countries. We'll, I don't know that we'll ever learn but we may end up learning the hard way, is another way that I can put it. Anyway, moving on, let's talk about tourniquets with Doc Bones. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. For more than a decade, I've designed medical kits for survival scenarios. Now, in these kits, I've always used brand name items and felt the genuine articles were important in terms of reliability, especially for potential lifesavers like tourniquets, hemostatic dressings, and compression bandages. Aside from confirmation from those people working in the field, however, I had little hard data to support my opinion. 
Now, a study in the summer 2023 issue of the Journal of Special Ops Medicine compares the well-known combat application tourniquet, or CAT, to a much cheaper look-alike that occupies space in many thousands of medical kits, the Military Tactical Emergency Tourniquet, or MTET. These are commonly found on third-party sites such as eBay, Amazon, and online medical kit stores with low pricing. The current design of the cat tourniquet involves a hook-and-loop fastening strap tightened with a thick plastic rod known as a windlass. The MTED is very similar in appearance and mechanics to the cat, but available at approximately a third to half the cost. It's been so successful in sales that it's the Amazon's choice in the category. Made overseas, the MTED and a number of other tourniquets are marketed in English for the American and Canadian consumer. Given the visual similarity, discount price, and quality claims, the MTED is a tempting option for anyone on a budget. And who isn't these days? Before I talk about the study, let me say I have no financial interest in any company that manufactures tourniquets. Okay, so the researchers of the Special Ops Journal study took a group of 50 combat medics, 68Ws, who served as instructors at Joint Base San Antonio, Fort Sam Houston, Texas. They were told to self-apply either an MTET or cat tourniquet on the mid-thigh area. They used one tourniquet on one leg, then the other tourniquet on the other leg, and were timed. Placement time target was about 60 seconds, with a successful application confirmed by a sonogram showing cessation of arterial flow in the dorsalis pedis artery located on the top of the foot. All 50 medics were successful in applying the cat tourniquet under 60 seconds. With the MTET, only 40 combat medics or 80% succeeded, with the MTET requiring a longer median time overall to complete the task. In addition to failing the 60-second test, mechanical failures, 14%, were encountered in the form of a bent windlass rod, rip stitching, and a deformed buckle. A mechanical failure, you might imagine, can mean the difference between life and death. This study provides evidence that not all tourniquets are created equal, even when applied by experienced professionals. It's true the combat medics may be more familiar with the cat tourniquet and thus maybe apply it faster, but a popular look-alike does not appear to be equally effective in stopping blood flow in a significant number of cases. This leads me to suspect that production or material flaws may be to blame for the difference. The cat, as well as the soft T-wide and the tactical mechanical tourniquet, have all received the blessing of the Military's Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care, a recommendation not given lightly. Don't assume that lower-cost imitations, though popular, are equivalent to those that have been thoroughly tested in both the lab and the battlefield. This study is rare proof that you get what you pay for. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about tourniquets and over 200 other topics in survival settings with the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. And get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Yeah, I mean, there's certain things that when you're making them part of your preparedness and medical things especially, that you don't cut corners. You don't cut corners. If you're using a tourniquet... It means that some really bad shit has happened. You don't use a tourniquet because you have a little bleeder on your pinky. You you use a tourniquet at risk of permanent damage to the limb because the alternative is exsanguination, which is a nice way of saying bleeding to death. And to have a mechanical failure of a tourniquet, well, that, again, that is the worst thing at the worst time. 
And so I completely agree with this, and I have always gone with, for our preps, the actual uh, military issue equipment for this need, because it is proven time and time again in the battlefield. And again, there's just places we do not cut corners. You guys know me, I'm big on price-to-value ratio with a lot of things. Well, you know, a tool you use in your kitchen, if it if it happens to crap out after a couple, three years, and you replace it, and it worked out economically to be a better deal, fine. When you start talking about things you put your trust of your life in, then no, don't cut quarters. That said, if I had one of these aftermarket uh, tourniquets, and that's all I had, and I was in a situation where I needed a tourniquet, I would damn sure use it. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and hear from uh, Romero Romani on... Uh, Sinking cell phones. Romero, of course, our newest addition to the expert council and the founder and president of Above Phone. Hey everyone, it's Ramiro Romani from Above Phone. This is my first video for the Survival Podcast Expert Council. Thanks, Jack, for inviting me, and I look forward to answering all of your technology and privacy questions. Today we have a question from Joseph. Joseph asks, Hey Ramiro, is there an easy way to sync my calls and texts between two phones? I have a home phone and a work phone. I use the same number on each phone. Currently, I switch the SIM card whenever I want to switch phones. Then I back up and restore the, the text messages to sync the calls and messages between both devices. If I remember correctly, you mentioned in your interview that there were services where you could get a phone number without a SIM card. Yes, so Joseph, that sounds like a lot of work just to keep two phones synced. Yes, we do offer an internet phone number service and I'd love to explain that to you. So this is actually over to our left here. That is our internet phone number service or the interface you would get on the above phone. And um, how it works is it's running on top of a chat protocol called XMPP. XMPP alone allows you to have N10 encrypted messages, voice calls, and video calls, and it works incredibly well. So that's if you wanna have really private conversations, but it also has the added convenience of being able to bridge it out to the phone network. And so that's what our internet phone number uh, phone service does in partnership with a company called JMP running out of Canada. And if you get above privacy suite, you will get access to this internet phone number service. You'll get one month free. Uh, you'll be using our private XMPP server, which is uh, optimized to uh, not log. And additionally, um, you'll have uh, reliable service. Now, the thing we like about XMPP is that it's truly open and decentralized, meaning that anyone can run it at home. This is in contrast to messengers like Signal, WhatsApp, and Telegram, where you have to rely on a set of central servers that you don't know how the code works on there. So with XMPP, you can actually have it all. Uh, okay, so um, how does this internet phone number service work? Well, I'll show you. Uh, it's actually really easy. Let's go ahead and add a contact here. Um, well, the first thing, before you even get here, you get to pick out a phone number uh, for yourself in the United States or Canada. You literally have a list of phone numbers for every city in the United States or Canada, or most cities in the United States or, Can States or Canada, and you get to pick it out. And when you start making calls and text messages, from the other person's perspective, it looks like you're just calling from that phone number. So it's a really seamless experience. In here, I'm gonna show you how to add a new contact, a new phone number, you can hit PSTN and then you can literally dial the number just like that and then add them. And you can see it converts the contact to an XMPP address, meaning that you can, um, set, you can set a name for this. 
You can do whatever you want with this. You'll know that when you message this particular contact, it will bridge out to the phone network. So um, you can see that I can call them. I can also send them text messages. I can send them group messages. I can send them uh, small files like pictures. And, um, and yeah, so you can do pretty much everything you would expect from a phone using this internet phone number solution. And the best part to go back to answering Joe's question is that it can be synced across devices. So you can log into XMPP on your old phone. You can also log into XMPP on your above phone and have the calls and texts synced at the same time. This is actually what we do to manage our support phone number. Um, um, the, business, uh, the number on my business card uses this internet phone number solution and it works wonderfully. You can drive and call. Um, wherever you have service, you're going to be able to make calls. So uh, I hope that answers your question. Uh, another bonus thing is that you can even log into XMPP on your computer and you can begin to have text messages show up on your, uh, your XMPP client on your computer. So with above phone, you get all this and more. You, um, the, if you want to work with above phone, you can go to our website abovephone.com and you can purchase a phone. You uh, can bring your own service. You don't um, need to get a service from us. You can bring Verizon or AT&T or whatever service you might have and then use it with our phone for extra privacy because we do things like offer a VPN, which will encrypt your internet traffic um, from your, your internet service provider or from your cellular service provider so they can't see what you're doing. And then you can use internet-based communication solutions like XMPP in our internet phone number service. So um, you get all of these services as a part of Above Suite. So you pay for the phone and then you also have an additional a yearly cost of $100 for Above Suite. And that is a tremendous value because you get email, calendar, a VPN, encrypted chat, voice call, video calling, which we just talked about, video conferencing, and then also a search engine. And we're planning on a lot more uh, additions. So um, check our website out at abovephone.com. If you want to check out any of our webinars, go to learn.abovephone.com. And uh, yeah, contact us through the website. We look forward to hearing from you, and I hope you learned something. Till next time, please remember our connection is sacred. Peace. And just real quick again, remember, if you are an MSB member and you want to get a phone from Above Phone, you can get $75 off any of, this, any of the phones at Above Phone uh, as an MSB member, which is one and a half times the annual rate of MSB just in that one benefit. So if you're not an MSB member yet, if you're thinking about getting yourself an above phone, and I think it's a really good idea to do so, uh, that alone would be enough reason to go ahead and sign up for MSB. Next, let's talk about managing Direct Gray's coppice tree systems. And you know who that question's for. It has to be for Nick Ferguson. Nick Ferguson here with an expert counsel answer on managing a coppice tree system. And this is for Nick Ferguson, what is a good in-row and between-row spacing for my coppice trees? I'm planning a coppice and want to get decent spacing so I can let sheep direct graze the coppice, as well as hand harvest for rabbits and making tree hay. I will use electric netting to control the sheep's access to the trees and would like an alleyway of grass and clover for grazing as well. I'm planting mulberry, hybrid willow, and hybrid poplar. How far apart should uh, I space the individual trees, and how far apart should I space the rows? All right, so um, the number one on those uh, trees for uh, for 
feeding as fodder is going to be the mulberry. Number two would be hybrid willow. Hybrid willow is fan-freaking-tastic for just about any of those ruminants, including the rabbits. Mulberry is number one on my list. Hybrid poplar is sometimes uh, not popular <laughs> um, with uh, a lot of animals, but it makes a fan Fantastic fuel wood. That's why I include it in that fodder tree pack because I'm trying to get y'all as much of a well-rounded um, application kit uh, to get as many of those in the hands of people as possible. Um, so if you're going and and making as much of a uh, focused effort um, just to feed animals, I would. Try. I, I would recommend that you stay focused on mulberry and willow. Nice thing about the willow and the hybrid poplar is you can propagate those super, super, super simply with just what you have on hand. The mulberry is a little bit more complicated, but I've got information coming out on how to propagate those with cutting, so it should be pretty easy to propagate any of those with just the right toolkit. Um... I think I read all that question. How far apart should I space in? Yeah. Uh, thanks for all the content you put out. I really appreciate it. Best regards, Preston. Hey, maybe next time I should read the whole question and then start answering. All right. So <laughs> uh, thanks, Preston. That's a great question. My general rule of thumb is like a 24-inch spacing between the trees in the rows, about two foot. You could go as tight as a, a foot, 18 inches, something like that. If you wanted to put them every foot, then as they grow and mature, you could always thin them out to every two feet. Um, you can plant them every four feet. It really just depends on what feels comfortable to you and what works in your situation. There's lots of different variables. Um, but generally, I say every two foot. With the rows spaced anywhere between 12 and 8 feet apart, you can go tighter. You can put them in there every four foot. Uh, you, can, uh, you can put the rows every four foot, six foot, eight foot. 10 foot apart, you can put them 20 foot apart. You could put them 150 feet apart if you're going to be grazing in between those rows of trees. It really just depends on the context and the usage. The more spacing you have between the rows, the more grazing you're going to have. Mine, because I'm going with intensive production, are spaced 10 foot apart, and that gives me an easy 4 foot of grazing between them to cycle uh, rabbit tractors and possibly in the future to add poultry tractors in between my rows of trees. Um, so, uh, sure, you could direct graze the strips between the coppice trees with electronetting, but if you're using electronetting, that can't be touching the leaves because it'll short out and it's going to be preventing the animals from accessing the trees directly. So, you can't direct graze because they can't reach the trees. Um, and if you just, you know, kind of net in several of those rows and let the animals directly graze the trees, then they're going to strip all the leaves from whatever they can reach. That could be as high as six, eight foot up because they can walk that stuff down. And if we're talking about coppiced trees, they will be able to walk down the entire tree. I don't care if it's 12 foot tall because it's going to be really thin whips. They're going to be able to walk the whole thing down. And even if they got really thick, they're going to be able to eat at least four foot. And if it's a coppice system, we're talking about like the tallest this should ever really be getting is about four feet. So they're going to essentially be able to remove all the leaves from the trees 
which is going to kill the tree or at best stunt its growth and really drop that growth curve and productivity curve to the low, low, low end. And we want to keep that productivity curve at the at the upper end. We want to be at the top of that bell curve as much as possible. So I love the idea of using the coppice plot to run layers, you know, laying chickens and Muscovy ducks, as well as, you know, rabbit tractors and for the weaned bunnies and for, you know, smaller poultry-like quail. <clears throat> I love the idea of using coppice plots for that. I do not love the idea, and I'm going to give a hard no to the idea of having sheep, of giving sheep direct grazing access to the coppice trees. To explain my reasoning, let's use the imagery of a lawn to convey what's going on. Every weekend in suburbia, millions of homeowners flock to their lawnmowers to cut the grass. When they pull the mower out, they leave the mowing height set at the same elevation. Why not mow every other week and just scalp the grass to the ground or remove all the grass leaves? You won't have to mow every week. You'd have to mow like half as much. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Well, no, it wouldn't be great because the problem is removing that much leaf matter would kill a good number of the plants and your lawn would be patchy or you would just kill the whole stinking lawn. If you go into a dry spell after you just scalped it, you'd kill your whole lawn. Likewise, if you coppice the trees and you let herbivores direct graze, you're going to find that the animals are going to strip all the leaves they can reach. The ones low to the ground. And those are the only leaves that are left after you harvest the top. And now the coppice trees have no leaves and you scalped your lawn. So if you want to allow large herbivores to have direct access to the ground around the trees for grazing purposes, you need to pollard the trees above browse height so the animals do not have access to the leaves and shoots. Then you can go above their browse height and use a hedge trimmer to knock all the excess harvestable limbs to the ground where the animals will feed without you needing to collect the leaf matter and transport it. But still... If you're pollarding, you've got to leave enough leaves for that tree to recover and regrow new material. It's got to be able to make sugars to be able to keep growing. So you've got to leave a whole bunch of leaves on that sucker to let it keep growing. If your goal is to not collect and transport the cut coppice leaves and stems and instead have the stock do that work for you, no problem. You're going to have to use a pollard system, like I said, drop the leaves directly onto the ground and let the animals pick it up and eat it directly where you drop it. That's no problem, but you have to use a pollard system. And that's why I say coppice tree systems are for livestock exclusion and pollard trees are for livestock inclusive systems. Coppice trees will be over harvested or the leaf growth will be inverted from what an easy harvest looks like. You want to harvest the tops of the trees, not the bottom. So if you let the animals harvest the bottom, the trees are going to push all of their growth to the top to avoid grazing pressure, and you're going to have to work overhead, which basically means the animals are either going to kill the trees or force you into a pollarded tree system anyways. So you might as well just pick one and set up the system one way or the other so that it is useful for your individual situation and scenario. 
It's, it's kind of difficult to explain using only words and no visual aids, but the gist of it is COPPA systems are livestock excluded. Pollarded systems are livestock included. Coppicing is actually kind of higher production and relatively easier or slash less work than pollarding because you're not working overhead. It's safer, it's simpler, and in my opinion, you get a little bit more out of it for less effort. All right, I guess that's it. Um, I hope that really helps. Um, if you have any more questions about coppicing and pollarding, feel free to send them in. I love getting this information in front of people. I love seeing this become more of a mainstream thought process and goal for people. I think it is really, really the way of the future. I hope this encourages y'all. Uh, I am Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty. Do good things. So while we're on the topic of livestock, not everybody has grazing animals. Not everybody has animals, but I would say the vast majority of folks who are doing the homesteading thing do have small livestock at a minimum on their homestead, uh, in this audience anyway. And uh, one of the common problems, and I talked about this with our guest this week, um, Morgan Gold, is keeping water available to your livestock in your winters. And when it comes to small animals, a lot of times we use these small watering systems, et cetera, and they freeze up really quickly, and that leaves us, you know, multiple times a day bringing them water. Whatever. Is there a way around this? Well, it's, you know, it's going to have an energy-based solution, and the guy that knows about energy is Sean Mills. So Colonel Roy from the audience has asked about this very subject, and here's Sean's answer. Hey, everybody. It's Sean Mills with Hack My Homestead, and today I have an expert council question coming in from West Virginia. This is from Colonel Roy. Roy says, what type of system and equipment could I install to prevent water from freezing for small livestock during the winter months? Details. I live in West Virginia where we often get freezing temperatures for at least several weeks during the middle of winter and also experience unexpected freezes randomly on the early and late ends of winter. I have a lot of small livestock such as poultry and rabbits for which their waterers freeze up requiring me to ditch bulk waters during this time and use small bowls and bottles and changing out daily to thaw or breaking water in rubber bowls. As the livestock is in the field in mobile structures and in a barn, neither with grid power, I do not have a ready or easily added power source to use AC plug-in style heated bottles or tank heaters. As it's now the hottest part of the year, I'd like to take advantage of plenty of planning and preparation time to get ready for next winter, which seems like an eternity away, but tick-tock, the clock never stops, and we'll be here soon. I'd like to have a system which would save me from having to rewater daily, maybe even going for three days, as the limiting factor is the rabbit bottles, which generally last for three to four days without refilling when freezing is not an issue. Is there some factors for which I have not provided enough information? If you need more details, free for you to feel to contact me. Thanks in advance. Respectfully, Colonel Roy from West Virginia. Roy, I got a few ideas for you. None that I've used myself as I have not been in a similar situation as you experience every winter. Uh, typically, I've lived in places where I have either not as cold a winters as you do or when I lived in Indiana, we had the poultry and other small livestock close enough to the house uh, where we could actually run power out there and have heated um, pedestals that we set the waters on. So um, 
There's not a great energy-free solution for bulk waterers for livestock in the winter, but I do have a couple ideas. One would be insulating the cages themselves that they're in to allow the body heat from the animals to keep ambient temperatures in their enclosures above freezing. I know that when I had a big chicken house with about 15 hens in it, it would get actually relatively warm in the dead of winter inside that overnight when those outside temperatures were in the teens, but I had 15 chickens stowing off body heat inside a, a not an airtight but relatively airtight structure that was not insulated so you know doing that keeping the cold out and the warmer air in obviously would be a good uh, first step where you could continue to use the actual bottles themselves um, but outside of that keeping the ambient environment above freezing I think you might have to go away from the bottles or use some different type of technique to kind of auto refill the bottles with warmer um, water. So, you know, insulating the bottles. Um, I've seen a lot of people that get through mild freezes with just insulating those bottles. So the stuff at the early and late part of winter, that might be a good solution for you, but it's probably not going to help you when you have weeks at a time uh, below freezing. Uh, you could build something that would approximate a solar oven to batch heat the hot water and then use that to supply the animals over a very short distance. So that's something that could actually be built on a trailer, kept in a, um, you know, a, a nice sunny area, uh, and then you could move the water to the animals over a short distance. Uh, I intend to build a batch water heater this winter that's going to be just a simple 55-gallon water heater, or it's a 50-gallon water heater uh, with the insulation stripped off. It's going to be painted black, and it's going to be placed inside an insulated box. It's also painted black on the inside with glass on the top of it. So it's like a cold box for lettuce, but it's for a 50-gallon uh, water heater. And so I've seen people that have built these before, and they raise their water temperature to well over 100 degrees uh, in the winter. And so a short distance run of water delivery from that tank that wouldn't have to be elevated very high uh, to continue to fill those uh, bottles up for the rabbits and the chickens. And I say not very long because you don't want to have hot water and then a frozen delivery pipe. Um, so that's something that you might look into. You might look into something that could be somewhat automated in terms of water delivery. So maybe it only actually sends water out to refill the bottles in the middle of the day when the sun is out, which is going to prevent you from, or at least reduce the chance that you're going to have a frozen line. Um, and that's something that could run off of a small battery. So, um, I've seen people put ping pong balls or half filled water bottles in water tanks. And since the freezing wants to occur at the surface, uh, these structures will actually compress and prevent the ice crystals from forming. But now the potential problem is that you're sending that, you know, fro freezing or sometimes even below freezing water out to your animals which if it doesn't freeze on the line or the bottle, once the ping pong ball is not around anymore, uh, you might create some health impacts to the actual animals themselves. So for me, I would probably build a batch water heater on a trailer and I would feed the water to the animals during the day on some sort of timer. Uh, and um, I would probably... 
just refill, you know, I'd have a port outside of that, that batch water heater. And when I went out to check on the chickens or, or the, the rabbits, I would fill that thing up. And, um, you know, I don't know how long 55 gallons of water, uh, would last those, but that seems to me like in your situation, probably the best way to do it. So sorry, I couldn't be more help, but those are my ideas. Uh, let me know if you try any of them and I'd love to hear how it turns out for you. Well, guys, keep getting those questions in for Jack and I'll keep getting them answered. Thanks. So there's just a couple thoughts that I have here. One, the animals that are in the field, if you're tractoring or something like that, I, I, I try not to do that type of thing in in the winter period. So, like, if you're tractoring birds for meat or something. Uh, and so if these animals have access to the barn, um, and I know you say they don't have grid power there, and I don't know how far your barn is from, you know, the closest source of power, but there's a lot to be said for just burying a piece of one-inch freaking uh, PVC pipe out to the barn, uh, cutting the end off of an extension cord or, or so to reach out to it, pull it through that pipe and just take your, you know, your you can buy the ends for the cords and rewire it on the other end uh, just to have, you know, one circuit of power and to be able to just, you know, run a couple electric heated, uh, because they don't draw that much. You're just keeping the ice from, or the water from freezing. Uh, so I would at least consider that, and you will never be unhappy about having power out there. Now, you know, if it's a thousand feet or something, that maybe that doesn't work. And or you know, the extension cord method then really isn't the way to go. You would have to do proper wiring. But I've run extension cords plenty of times for things like this, and even just lay them on the ground. The problem in the winter with that is, you know, unless it's a single cord, you've got the the coupling of the two cords together. And, and you can actually put too much draw on extension cords, so you've got to think about how far. But I've to do things like run uh, a, a stock tank de-icer, I've run a 100-foot extension cord. I've never had a problem doing that. Um, so that might be something to at least consider here as well, in addition to all the good advice Sean gave you. Uh, now let's hear from Professor C.J. Kilmer on The Real Lincoln. Howdy, this is CJ from the Dangerous History Podcast, and I'm responding to a question from a listener asking me if I've read the book The Real Lincoln by Thomas DiLorenzo and what my thoughts are about the book. So, yes, I have read the book. Now, I will caveat everything I'm going to say with the proviso that I read this book approximately 15 years ago, and I do not believe I have reread it since then. So it's possible that some things here and there that I think of as, you know, good and bad things about the book, my memory might be a little bit off. So, you know, if I'm erroneous in anything I say about the book, uh, forgive me, it's just the ravages of time. But I certainly agree with most of the overall, like, big picture take of the book. I certainly agree that Lincoln should not be seen as sort of a saint or messiah-like figure, as he often is in kind of standard narratives about him in the Civil War and so forth. I also agree very much that Lincoln was not primarily motivated by wanting to free slaves in his decision to be willing to go to war to prevent Southern independence. I also agree with DiLorenzo's overall take that Lincoln was essentially a corporatist and a nationalist, and so most of his decisions that he made 
during his entire presidency were motivated by the kind of Hamiltonian Federalist slash Henry Clay Whig conception that the United States federal government should generally be more dominant over the states and that the United States federal government should sort of partner with major corporate interests because this would be for the good of the nation. This would lead to, you know, faster national development and power and prosperity and all these sorts of things. So this is a line of thinking that you can clearly trace from kind of the Alexander Hamilton types through the Henry Clay types. And as DiLorenzo himself points out, Lincoln was a huge fan of Henry Clay, and Henry Clay was sort of his political hero. It's where Lincoln got a lot of his political ideology from. I also agree pretty strongly with DiLorenzo's characterization of many of Lincoln's actions during the war as being authoritarian and unconstitutional, and I did cover those things as part of my not-so-Civil War series that I did about five years ago. So I agree with all those big points in kind of doing a revisionist takedown of the standard establishment narrative of Lincoln. Now, some criticisms and disagreements, and again, been probably 15 years since I read the book, so I may be misremembering some things here and there. But I would say that overall, the book, my recollection is that it relies too heavily for kind of my preferences on secondary sources and does not include enough primary source material. Now, quick version of what those things mean for those who you know are not familiar with history lingo. A primary source is a source from the actual time period that you're researching. So, you know, it could be an infinite number of things. Could be a government document, could be someone's journal, could be someone's, you know, letters and communications, could, you know, we, we could come up with an endless list. But it's an actual document from the time period that you're researching. A secondary source is something that has been created by an historian, but prior to you, that has looked at primary sources and, you know, put together a book or an article based on their research. And in general, in the history profession, it is considered stronger when you're writing a book or an article. It is stronger the more primary source research you have versus secondary source research. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with secondary sources. It's pretty much inevitable that you're going to cite some secondary sources if you're doing a work of history. But my recollection is that DiLorenzo's book leaned a little bit too much towards secondary sources for the research and not enough towards primary source material. In addition to that, it seems like he's very much on board with the sort of lost cause myth of the Confederacy. Now, the lost cause myth of the Confederacy, one of its tenets is that the southern states that seceded were not primarily motivated by a desire to preserve slavery in their secession. This is just simply factually wrong if you actually do what good historians are supposed to do, which is to go to the primary sources. Now, it is true, and I would agree, that Lincoln and his government's decision to go to war to prevent Southern independence was not primarily motivated by a desire to free the slaves. But that does not necessarily mean that the other side's motivation to want to leave the Union in the first place was not primarily based on the desire to, in their view, preserve and protect slavery. Because even though Lincoln himself was not really an abolitionist, the fact of the matter is that the overwhelming majority of Southern leaders in, say, 1860, 1861, believed he was an abolitionist. And so, yeah, you can quote Lincoln saying, I'm not going to war to free the slaves, and I think there's every reason to believe that he meant that at the time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the Southerners took him at his word and believed that he didn't want to free their slaves. Go back and look at what they actually were saying in, say, the 1860 election, and they believe Lincoln was an abolitionist despite his words to the contrary. 
The fact of the matter is, if you go back and look at statements by Southern leaders in 1860 and early 1861, basically when the states were debating whether or not to secede from the Union, you find overwhelming statement after statement after statement of Southern leaders saying explicitly, the main reason we are doing this is to preserve slavery from the horrible Republican abolitionist threat. That's the kind of thing they were saying. And yes, you can find statements by Southern leaders saying, oh, we were really seceding over, you know, states' rights and the tariff and whatever. And I'm not saying those things weren't like part of the motivation. But the funny thing is, you really don't find those statements being made by Southern leaders until after the war is over and they've lost and they're essentially trying to retcon their own reasons for seceding to make themselves, you know, they've lost. And now they're trying to protect kind of their historical legacy and image now that they have lost the war and slavery's gone. And most people are starting to agree like, yeah, it's probably a good thing that slavery ended. And so for just a little bit more on some of the things I talked about here, of course, um, about five years ago or so, I did a giant many part, many hour series. It was a huge uh, labor for me on the American Civil War. I called the series the not so civil war. And I did one episode toward the end of the series that was um, episode 176 of the Dangerous History Podcast titled The Great Alibi in the Treasury of Virtue, The Not-So-Civil War, Part 15. And you can look that up in my back catalog and listen to it for way more detail on a lot of the stuff I'm talking about here about the problems with the lost cause mythology, trying to whitewash the fact that, in fact, Southerners were primarily motivated by their perception of slavery being threatened by the Lincoln administration and their desire to protect it. And in fact, several of the southern states even passed statements, their state legislatures passed statements when they were passing ordinances of secession, which if you actually go and read them, they are pretty clear that the number one thing, yeah, they mentioned some other issues and disagreements with the North, but the number one thing that they harp on overwhelmingly is a desire to protect the institution of slavery. And if you want way more detail, um, even then DiLorenzo gets into in his book about Abraham Lincoln's corporatism and the ways in which he helped out institutions like Wall Street and the big railroad corporations during his presidency, you know, things that often get overshadowed by the Civil War going on simultaneously. I did a bonus episode back during that time period when I was covering the Civil War. I did a bonus episode that I titled Corporate Abe, the Other Side of the Lincoln Administration. And if you sign up to support me at five bucks a month or more via Patreon or Subscribestar, one of the perks you get is access to a bunch of bonus episodes of my show that are not available to the general public, one of them being this one. And it's like two and a half hours long, give or take, and it goes through just how much of a corporatist Abraham Lincoln was. And so in that sense, he's kind of the progenitor, not just of Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, but ultimately in the long run of people like Joe Biden, Barack Obama, the Clintons, etc., yeah, I completely agree with what CJ has to say there about Lincoln and the Civil War. There is no doubt whatsoever that Lincoln really didn't give a flaming F about the plight of the slaves and, and the overall context of things, and that his goal was the preservation above all things of the Union. It doesn't mean that's not why the South seceded in the first place. And, and as CJ said, there is... It's just tremendous documentation to demonstrate that, including the fact that each state issued its own uh, secession document that was, you know, sent in, you know, and every single one of those stated that the primary cause was slavery. I'll put it a totally different way. If we go back to the 1860s 
and slavery already is gone from the United States, there would not have been a civil war. The South, while it did um, specifically uh, desire a stronger state's rights, which is a position I actually completely agree with. The main state right that they were concerned with was the right to slavery. And they were not so concerned that they would have fought a war without the issue of slavery being present. And I think it's kind of I think it's kind of stupid of certain people in society today to try to rewrite that history in the face of so much documentation to the contrary. And again, pointing out, but the South wanted this, and the South wanted that, and the South wanted this, and if we had those things today, uh, we'd be better off. That's a valid point in of itself. It is not a valid point as to this was not about slavery. It was absolutely about slavery. But no, Lincoln was kind of a sleazeball. In a lot of ways. But so are most politicians, especially politicians that rise to the level of President of the United States. It's not unique to Lincoln. Just my thoughts on that. With that, let's talk about modern politics to agree, but global politics, not U.S. Well, that certainly impacts U.S. politics. So, yesterday... I talked about a great global shift that's occurring. We're in the middle of it. And I always try to preface this with the black hole analogy from science fiction. That is very it is at least theoretically possible that a you know a, a space going vessel could be caught in the event horizon of a black hole and not know it because in spite of the tremendous gravity uh, enacted the 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 pull inward is slow relative to the distance right and, and how true that is you don't know but it's good for an analogy because the analogy here is that when we are having momentous shifts in society at the end of them, they appear to have occurred overnight, but in Hemingway's words, gradually then suddenly. And the gradually can be very gradual over a very long period of time, and a lot of people could be sounding an alarm and going, look, it's happening, and they're just ignored and poo-pooed, especially with perception bias. And the average person in America today, including even our youngest people, who have no real respect for America's founding values and the values that actually make America unique in the world, they still believe in America as far as our power. Okay, as our power. We are this indestructible force. And so the person that will, a young person with purple hair that will crap all over America, would, if you told them, but do you think if, you know, X country came here and attacked us that we have any, no, they'll never, they'll kick their ass. Right? We have been brainwashed into this invincibility, in, and not just militarily in all things. We have been brainwashed to believe this. Um, and that includes in economics, you know, like one of the problems some of the, you know, socialist-minded morons have is that we are so powerful, and so they, they believe it. So both sides believe the bullshit, and that the idea that some other currency or group of currencies or trading block would relegate us to the sidelines when we've been in control of things for so long is just ridiculous to people. Well... Any empire that's ever existed, the people of that empire would have felt that way at the height of their empire, but also in the decline of their empire before it became fully readily evident. 
So South Africa came out and said, hey, all this talk about a BRICS common currency, we're not doing that. Yes, we just let in six new members, uh, and, and we plan to continue to build up our trading with each other. But the big thing that we plan on doing is opting out of the dollar. Opting out of the dollar. And he even said uh, they're working on uh, is not anti-West or anti-Swift. It's, it's pro their own countries. I think to really understand what's going on and why these countries feel this way, it's not just about sanctions on Russia. There's no sanctions on China. There's no sanctions on Brazil right now. Right? And they're two of the leading countries in the BRICS block. There's no sanctions on South Africa right now. But they, you know, they're talking about direct trade between other members using their own currencies. The reason is there is no good reason for the United States dollar to be the global reserve currency right now. And there hasn't been since Nixon temporarily took us off the gold standard in 1971, which means temporary is permanent. How did we become, and I don't want to rehash Bretton Woods and all that, like, I just want to, like, the macro reason why. Why did the rest of the world agree to do business in dollars in the first place? Why? Well, they agreed to do it because we were using the gold standard. America was considered a trustworthy nation. We were, t we were trusted in belief that we had the amount of gold that we said, and we were trusted in our dollar pick, and we were the rising superpower of the world. With all of that together, it made perfect sense, because we needed to move, you have to understand, we needed to move from, a, I, from the concept of moving around bars of gold in vaults, to do business and shipping bars of gold across oceans and things like that. The, the, the modern economic system was evident and imminent. And the ability to transact across borders and oceans without it moving metal was needed. So the dollar became this idea that if I'm holding United States dollars, I'm holding gold. It's as good as gold. And I can put dollars in my my central bank as a reserve and it's like putting gold in a vault and then this way we won't have this, this issue that the BRICS nations right now are trying to avoid and that is South Africa doesn't really want a BRICS currency because it would take away from the South African currency or the Brazilian currency or now that Argentina is becoming part of this the Argentinian peso the ability of all these governments to control their money inside their own borders is important to them. I believe that if we are in a fiat world anyway, if you do not have a currency of your own, you are not a sovereign nation. You either have a commodity money like gold that is universal, or you have a local currency, or you have both. But you don't give up your sovereignty. Well, these nations are doing this to assert sovereignty. They're not doing it to lose sovereignty. So if India gives up its ability to manipulate the rupee, then they lose that sovereignty, and they're not about that. Nor does China want to give up its ability to manipulate its currency. Nor does Russia want to give up its ability to manipulate its currency. So as I said yesterday, I see long-term some sort of... BRICS banking something that maybe is a gold-backed thing, 
that acts as maybe like, kind of like Bitcoin Lightning, a settlement layer to make the exchangeability of these currencies automatic or lower cost or more rapid. But right now, and this is you're about to see this go into full swing, these countries are going to start doing business with each other in their own currencies. And this we we've made like that we need the American system and we need SWIFT and we need the dollar because everybody you can't figure this out on your own. What the, what the minister from South Africa said is, we have exchange rates. We know how many South African dollars or whatever uh, convert into how many ruples. We don't, we don't need the dollar to do this. We have our own money. They have their own money. So I wanted to really make it simple for you to understand here, and we'll use cryptocurrency for this. Okay, so let's say that I am the nation of Bitcoin. Jack Spirico is, but I'm not, but let's say I'd be great if I was. And I'm the nation of Bitcoin. I don't want, uh, you're, you're the nation of Dogecoin. And I don't want Dogecoin. I want Bitcoin. And you don't want Bitcoin for whatever reason. You want Dogecoin because it's the currency you manipulate in Dogeland, right? So you're like, Jack, I want to buy a whole bunch of shit from, from Bitcoinville, right? And I'm like, oh, what do you want to buy? And I want to buy some oil. Oh, okay, we have lots of that. Yeah, you want crude, you want refined. I want crude, okay. So I say, okay, it's going to be X Bitcoin. Well, and you're like, but I use Dogecoin. Oh, I don't want Dogecoin. Do you think I'm going to say no? Let's make it a little bit smaller. Right now, the only cryptocurrency that I hold in earnest is Bitcoin, other than a pretty good stack of Ethereum that I have from long ago that I don't want to pay taxes on just yet by, by exchanging it. But I sell my membership for $50 a month. By the way, if you pay in crypto, whether it's Bitcoin or not, if you pay in crypto, you can buy three years for $100, effectively dropping the price to $33. I don't really advertise that, but I do that. So let's say that you get in touch with me and you want to pay me in Dogecoin or Dash or any other currency that I don't really want. Do you think I'm going to tell you no? All I'm going to do is give you an address for that currency on one of my exchanges. And as soon as I get your currency, I'm going to convert it to Bitcoin and withdraw it. There's no reason I would say no to this. It does add a step and it does add a small transaction expense. But... It's far more permissionless than going through our banking system or what have you. Well, there's no reason that they can't apply that same logic. And that's what they've been doing, and they're going to begin doing more and more. And I have a feeling here. I have no proof of this, and even though I do have a few contacts that can get me some information in this side of the world, so to say, I've not been able to confirm this, but I have a very sneaking suspicion in this. Like I told you yesterday, they're adding six more countries to BRICS. This is the first expansion of BRICS since 13 years ago when South Africa was brought in. And six is a hell of a lot more than one. And again, there's 40 more countries that want to come on board with us. 40 more. Uh, and there's another 20 on... Well, there's... I'm sorry. There's 34 more that have formally applied for membership. These six were accepted. And then there's another 20 that expect like they're 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 expressing interest. They're not full, they have not fully formally submitted to join yet. That's a lot of countries. And the ones they just let in to remind you from yesterday: Argentina, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and UAE. A combined population of an additional 320 million people have joined this block, bringing the BRICS block up to represent three and a half billion people. 
And of those six nations, four of them are major producers of oil, those being Iran, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and UAE. And I'm thinking, and I'm, I think this is a pretty good guess, that the deal was, we let you in, you agree that we trade in local currencies and use an exchange process to do this, and as we, because the even though they formally announced, yes, we're letting these six countries in, that will actually kick in at the beginning of next year. And I think going into 2024, you're going to see all 12 of these countries exclusively using their own currencies in trade with each other. And they'll tell you it's a nothing burger. And again, it's three and a half billion freaking people with another 36 standing at the door going, let me in. And I think this will be a test case, and it's going to become a condition upon entry. It won't even be, you can't use the dollar. It's if either side wants to do it the BRICS way, then you do it the BRICS way. You have to honor that. Because South Africa is still going to trade with the United States, and they're going to use the dollar system when they trade with the United States. All they're saying is, but when we trade with China, we're going to use our currency, and China will accept it and convert it to their currency, and vice versa. India, etc., will do the same thing. Argentina now coming into this. Um, again, in the strategic relationship between Argentina and China and the Magellan Straits, controlling shipping in South America, almost 100%. If you control the Panamanian Canal and the Magellan Straits, you control all overwater shipping in South America. And China has controlled the Panama Canal for a very long time. They've expanded it. It's much bigger than when I served there in the military. And they charge more for ships to go through it. And the reason that happened is we pulled out and the, and the, and the Chinese stepped right in because the Panamanians couldn't run the canal without us. They didn't have the technology. They didn't have the engineering. They didn't have the ability to do it. They didn't have the money to do it. Because the entire time that we were controlling it and robbing it from the Panamanians, we were charging so little for passage through it in the name of free trade that we were subsidizing it with manpower and we were subsidizing it with money. And we were subsidizing it with the defense of the United States military. And this entire world has changed now. And it is, you are in the middle of the event horizon of this shift. The dollar hegemony on the world is dying. And it may take another 10, 15 years to fully die. However, gradually then suddenly, the next financial crisis, which, by the way, the dude, I can't think of his name now, the guy that made all the money on the credit default swaps by shorting the housing market, um... In 2007, 2008, uh, Michael Burry, Michael Burry, Dr. Michael Burry, he's got like huge bet out right now, basically betting on a complete crash of everything by the end of the year. Um, he's a pretty good track record of predicting disasters like that. So I think 2024 could be a disastrous year economically for the dollar in the United States. That could accelerate 
the de-dollarization across the world. Because this is just something that nobody will admit publicly, at least from the mainstream or any of these economists and talking heads and suits, empty suits will, and that is that there is no good justification for the dollar as a reserve currency if it is not pegged to something hard. What difference is there in the dollar and the euro if you're in France other than the euro's your local currency? Yeah, it's printed out of thin air. So is the dollar. Why would you use a currency printed out of thin air? We have subjected the world to the trials of our inflation. And we have enforced this through a combination of hard and soft power. And those days are over, and it's a bigger deal than you think. Because it removes a tremendous advantage the United States has. Now, I'm actually for it. I don't think we should be controlling the world with this. But I want you to think about it this way. Let's imagine that they couldn't grow oranges in California, Texas, or Arizona. Let's imagine the only state that can produce oranges in the United States was Florida. For some reason, Hawaii couldn't do it either. And we made the orange the reserve commodity of the United States, meaning that if Maine wanted to trade lobsters with Texas for oil, both sides had to convert to oranges before they made the deal and then convert back out on the other side and we control the means of Florida controls the means of conversion. You can see where Florida would have a tremendous advantage in that fantasy economy. Well, the dollar hegemony is a real economy that's given us a tremendous advantage for a very long time and for the last 52 years we haven't deserved it because we reneged on a promise to the world and the world is finally saying, "Yeah, enough of this shit. Enough of this shit." But it will drastically reduce the United States' ability to manipulate other nations with monetary policy. And again, while I'm for it, I do not deny the implications on the U.S. economy and the U.S.'s place in the world as an empire. It is the primary means by which the United States ceases to be an empire, ceases to be able to control its vassals around the world. And if you ever really want to understand what I mean when I say we are not the good guys you have been told and you want to look at it from a military standpoint, go to Wikipedia, look up the page for for nations with overseas military bases. And look at how many bases outside of their own country all the nations of the world that even do that have. And look at the ones that they say are the bad guys, the Russians, the Chinese, etc. And they have significant military presence outside of their own borders. But when you look at the list of the United States foreign military bases and what have you, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. We have more military presence in other countries than we do in our own. And we're able to do that not just because we have a big military but due to monetary policy. Anyway, that's that's enough on that, guys. I want to wrap up. I hope you guys have a great weekend. I know I will. I want to remind you here at the end if you do like the show and the work that we do you can always help us out by doing your online shopping beginning at tspaz.com. I don't have an item of the day for you today but you can always find everything that I recommend. Uh, all the categories are outlined alphabetically at tspaz.com if you check that out. Uh, you can find all my recommendations but even if you just you're going to buy anything online anyway just start there no matter what you end up deciding to buy. You help support us in the work that we do. I think next week I might do another show on cooking and saving money uh, by taking control of your diet and your meals. 
uh, to a higher degree. And maybe we'll talk about some things like how to save money by buying meat in bulk and doing your own cutting and things like that. Because that is one of the least utilized, least utilized, uh, easy to learn and develop skills that I see in the world today. It's it, it's kind of funny, actually, how much money can be saved by buying uh, large cuts and doing your own breakdown or even breaking down chickens and stuff. And this is even just buying the most commercially available meat out there. It still saves a ton of money. Uh, and it is, in my opinion, what we should be basing our diets on. We should be eating animal-based diets, not plant-based diets, which most of the countries already on. And people often say, but it's so much more expensive. Well, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. So maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that. If you like that concept of learning how to save money just by breaking down things like a chuck roll or something like that, I really recommend you check out a dude on TikTok called Meat Dad. I really like the guy. He's kind of like me. He's an old bullshit kind of guy, and he uses the full uh, color of the English language from time to time as well. Uh, and He's just got great short little videos that show you how to do things like this, and I think that's something worth exploring. Also, yeah, I'm on TikTok. Uh, it's something that took a long time to get me to do. John Willis kept bugging me about it. I found a tool that makes shorts out of my podcasts uh, for me using artificial intelligence. So I've been putting some stuff up there. And uh, I'm Jack Spierko if you want to look me up on TikTok. Uh, and I'm, that's just my name. Nothing creative there. I didn't make it complicated. With that, I will catch you guys Monday with another episode. Have a great weekend. Just run you should have a house the American way a dollar down a dollar a month and you never have to pay there's a better way to do this let me show you a better way